The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, and 24-7 support. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code GUARDIAN to get 20% off during the month of September. This is Morris Gleitzman and you're listening to the Guardian Children's Books podcast. And I'm going to read to you from my latest book, After, which some of you may know is the fourth in a series of books, starting with Once, followed by Then, followed by Now, and the latest one is called After. They're all stories about uh, a boy called Felix who, in 1942, in Nazi-occupied Poland, was 10 years old. And through this series of books, he's gone on to be an 80-year-old man. And now in this latest one, because I left out an important part of his life, he's back as a 13-year-old. After I woke up and had a stretch as usual, and got dirt under my fingernails as usual, I heard voices above me in the barn. Lots of voices, which wasn't usual at all. I held my breath in the dark and tried not to make any scared noises. You know how when there's a war and you hide in a hole for two years so the Nazis won't find you and each night a kind man called Gabriel brings you food and water and takes your wheeze and poos away and the only voice you ever hear is his and you don't want to hear anybody else's because that could mean the Nazis know where you are and they've come to get you. I think the Nazis have come to get me. The voices up there sound bossy and impatient and angry. I sit up on my mattress and listen hard to catch what they're saying. I try to make out if they're using Nazi expressions like Jew vermin and shoot him in the vermin head. But I can't hear properly because this hole is under a horse stall and Dom is a big horse and he's muffling the sound. I struggle to stay calm and think who else the people could be. Neighbours, perhaps, from the next farm wanting to borrow some turnips. The choir, maybe, from the local church trying to persuade Gabriel to join. I look at the luminous watch Gabriel gave me. Five past six. It's evening, in the middle of winter. Normal people don't go out at all in winter if they can help it, and definitely not after dark. The men up there must be Nazis. I try to make myself as small as I can in my hole, which isn't easy because I've been growing a bit lately. Plus, at the moment, my body is completely rigid with fear. This is what I've been dreading. This is what I've been trying not to think about. And why did the Nazis have to come today, on my birthday? Maybe they're doing it on purpose. Maybe they've got a Jewish birthday list. Maybe for Nazis it's extra fun to kill people on their special day. I get cramp in my leg. Ow! I rub it as quietly as I can. I wish the straw in this mattress wasn't so scratchy and noisy. You'd think in 1945 they'd have invented quieter straw. And I wish I wasn't surrounded by things that go clink and clunk. Pea bottles and Richmond Crompton books and the small pieces of machinery Gabriel gives me to explore with my hands when the candle runs out so I can get an education. All that education will be wasted if I die now. I try to breathe very softly. 
I try to relax and take my mind off things by thinking about the hydraulic valve system in a hand-operated water pump. It doesn't work. I'm still feeling scared. Not just of being shot. I'm even more scared of what'll happen to Gabriek if the Nazis find me here. The Nazis hate people who protect Jews. They shoot them too, but they do worse things to them first. The voices up there sound like they're arguing. I still can't make out what they're saying. I hope Gabriek is telling the Nazis the story we made up. The one about how they should stay away from Dom's stall, because Dom is a moody horse with a very catching skin condition. Which isn't true, but you have to lie to Nazis. It's the only way. I try something else to stop myself panicking. It's what I do when I have a lot of loneliness or fear or worry. I close my eyes and pretend I'm William from the Richmond Crompton books, having adventures in the woods with my friends, cooking on campfires and building tree houses and inventing irrigation systems to help ants grow crops. Now I'm 13, I'm probably a bit old for that, but I don't care. Except it's not working either. I hear a sound up above, a loud, metallic sound. I know what that sound is. The safety catch on a gun. It's wonderful to be hearing Felix's voice again, this curious mix of humour and tension. But I wonder, why did you feel the need to return to this series? Because we've had what felt like the trilogy, you know, once, then and now. Well, in the third book now, when I had asked readers to join me leaping 70 years into Felix's later life and we meet him in that book as as an 80-year-old man and his story at that point is told through the voice of his granddaughter Zelda. As I neared the end of that book and it was one that I had always assumed would be the final stage of of my work with Felix, as I neared the end of it and and during that story I'd had the opportunity to look back at Felix's young life through, through his elderly eyes. I realised there was a very important part of his life that I just skipped over. And it's that point, and it's one that, that we all have to go through, where he really is able to say goodbye, symbolically and, and emotionally, to his parents. And it's that crucial first step towards becoming an adult. And I knew, having written the third book, that his adult life had been full of success. He'd been a very successful paediatric surgeon. He'd operated on hundreds of kids. He'd saved lives. He'd, he'd made a huge difference to, to many, many families and, and was widely admired and, and revered. And, and I knew that after such a traumatic and, and pain-filled childhood that um, it wasn't inevitable that his adult life would have ended up that way. And I just became curious as to how he made the transition. And it's a, it's a very difficult transition for him. I think this is, this is possibly the the most gruelling book of the series. There are, there are things that, that happen that are, that are almost unbearable to read. And I wonder how, how writing it, how you decided what, what he had to suffer. Were there points where you started writing and thought, no, he, this, this can't happen? Well, what I realised as I was writing the third book was that because I'd always seen Felix as a young person with remarkable aspects to his life, as is the case, I think, of all children caught up in wars. And I think I'd almost forgotten that 
he would also need to have all of the normal and usual experiences that young people have to have as part of their development and, and moving on to adulthood. And perhaps the most crucial is that point where, where we really start to think for ourselves and we, and we start to feel that, that we're taking over the reins of, of our own life and, and, and steering it to a large extent. I quickly realised that for most of us, if we're lucky, we have our parents, or at least one of them, to still be around at the point where we need to start that symbolic separation. Some of which involves realising that our our opinions and our perceptions of the world start to differ from our parents, and there's occasions where you know we feel moved to tell them that actually it turns out that they can be idiots sometimes, and and that that's a you know interesting and important part of every family's life those young people who don't have their parents around to do that work with I think are at a big disadvantage in the first two books as a 10 year old he spends most of his time running and hiding as any child particularly a Jewish child fearing what would happen if the Nazis got their hands on him would do but I also wanted Felix at 13 as he is in the fourth book to have the chance if he chooses to fight back and this is why he spends much of this story living with a partisan group, a group of resistance fighters in a Polish forest. It also gives him the opportunity because he becomes an assistant to the field surgeon there to get his first taste of what healing is all about with all of the sort of blood and guts that go along with it, particularly in a forest situation where there's no hospital, there's no proper building. But perhaps the most important aspect of this for me was that for the first time Felix would have the potential to have a gun in his hand. And during his earlier years he's had a lot of opportunity to observe and to contemplate what killing does to people, not just the people killed, but the killers. Having decided that the world is comprised of two types of people, people who prefer to create and mend things, mending people, he calls them, or people who seem to prefer to, to destroy things, breaking people, as he calls them. He's decided that he wants to be a mending person, and then, unexpectedly, he finds himself with the capacity to be the opposite, and because he, of course, has rage, grief, and many other dark feelings, he feels a strong impetus to, to hit back. But he's also noticed that people who start killing often find it difficult to stop. And this is embodied in his life by a young woman who becomes a sort of stand-in mother for him for a while, a Russian woman called Yuli, whose own family have been killed by the Nazis and who has been trained and is now quite a, a ruthless killer. But she's also able to show Felix some of the care and even love and, and emotional support that he needs from a mother. So she embodies both sides of this choice that he's facing. I would have sympathised with him, you know, with either of those choices, whichever way he'd gone, and I think many readers would too. And yet I wanted us to feel not only that he'd made the right choice for him, but the right choice for us as well, uh, in terms of, of, of it feeling satisfying and, and, and complete in terms of Felix's larger story. I think it's important to say that, you know, there is humour in this book. We're making it sound very, very gruelling, which it is in part. And, and I'd advise nobody make the same mistake that I did and read it on a train, particularly the, the last part. But <laughs> how does writing a book like this affect you? These four books have been certainly the most 
emotionally challenging but also rewarding books I've written. I always share the feelings that that my characters are experiencing while I'm while I'm writing a book, and and it, and it was a time of big and and deep and and quite unforgettable feelings for me writing all four of these books, in, including this last one. I felt kind of duty bound to try and equip him as much as possible with personal resources that would that would give him as much resilience as possible, and also allow at least some some experiences of, of of joy and pleasure and optimism and and optimism really was was one of the key things for me i think if young people are lucky optimism is a fairly innate part of of their makeup and and i certainly wanted to give felix the ability to keep his optimism alive through what three or four very challenging years in his childhood and so i made felix a storyteller i gave him a very active imagination but also the knowledge of how to use that imagination to keep his own optimism alive through telling stories to himself and those he cares about. Stories that I know, perhaps in the early books, can sometimes seem a little naive until you realise why he's telling himself these stories. That when an individual is in really, really tough circumstances, not only can they be excused for telling themselves slightly fanciful stories, one of the things I hope I've suggested in these books is that it can be a very self-protective thing to do. And for Felix, in the first two books, he's 10 and he's, and he's got a six-year-old friend, a Polish girl called Zelda. And I had a strong sense as I was writing those two books that without that capacity to tell those stories, Felix would have been much, much worse off mentally and emotionally. Children's books like Member, Orly the Bookworm, comments that, that you write a lot of different genres, as, as you've just mentioned. And she wants to know that um, if you could only write one genre, what would it be and why? I've always written books that, that have humour and sadness in them because I think not only is that how life is, but often you need contrast for each of your each element to really come into its own. For me, a book that, that only has humour in it and nothing else it can be a lot of fun at first, but it's, it's a bit like chocolate. It's great to eat, but you wouldn't necessarily want to eat nothing but chocolate for a week. Now, some of your listeners may disagree with me there. Um. I think I might disagree <laughs> with you there, actually. Another question here from BookMad2603. She says, uh, your book once brought a tear to my eye, partly because I was at a sad point in the book and partly because the war was a sad theme to choose. I was wondering why you chose to write a book based on the war. Before I answer that, I must just say that any website that has at least 2,603 BookMad subscribers is my kind of website. I'm very impressed. When I first started thinking about this, this well, what, what has become these four books, although originally I thought it would only be one, I wanted to write a story about friendship. But then I thought I'd really like to try and, you know, explore how powerful friendship is in a troubled world. So, so I thought I'd, I'd write about a friendship between two young people and place it in the middle of some of the most unfriendly behaviour on a really big scale that I could think of. Because I have a distant family connection to the Holocaust, that quickly became the example that I of unfriendliness that I decided to use. And really the rest of it flowed from there. Finally, you've got a question from Thomas. It's hard to tell on email, but I, I feel this should be read in a, a very indignant voice, which is that he says, I read on Wikipedia that you've only read the first Harry Potter book. Is that true? And if so, why? Because Wikipedia is a living and organic encyclopedia with countless authors, 
you can't always believe absolutely everything that's on Wikipedia, and sometimes it's worth double-checking with another source. However, they're not entirely wrong. I've read the first one and a half Harry Potters, and this is in no way a comment on the quality of those books, and neither is it, you know, the result of professional jealousy by me towards um, JK. It's simply that, sadly, while I'm working on or even thinking about one of my own books, I can't read other people's stories. The world of their story very quickly gets mixed up with the world of my story. And this is a very sad thing for me because I love to read fiction, but it means I can only read fiction for maybe you know a few weeks each year. And I tend to read a bit of everything to get an idea of what's going on. Once I'd read one and a half Harry Potter books, I sort of thought, yep, I'm really getting the picture here, and I've put the others aside for my retirement. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I don't actually plan to retire, so I may have to maybe that'll have to be my next life. <laughs> Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag-and-drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today, no credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you will get 20% off in September by going to squarespace.com and using the offer code GUARDIAN. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com audio.